All right, guys, welcome to the Unfiltered Sales Podcast. Today, we have a special guest. If you're driving, I need you to buckle up. We're going to blow your mind today. We got an amazing special guest. His name is Trent Bryson, CEO, leader. Today, I really want to dive into leadership, entrepreneurship, and what it's like to actually be a CEO. So I got a special guest, Trent Bryson. Please introduce yourself. Tell us what you do. And um, yeah. All right, uh, Trent Bryson, uh, run a company called Bryson Financial. We are uh, an employee benefits and insurance brokerage firm, primarily specialized in the private equity industry. So anytime a private equity company is gonna go buy a company, they call on us. We research all the culture, insurance, risks out there, and then uh, decide whether or not, or help them decide whether or not they should buy them. Um, also have an app called Dish TV, which empowers home chefs, which was, pretty awesome to uh, to help out during the pandemic of a lot of single moms, dads that were stuck at home taking care of their kids can now use their passion of cooking and, and roll that out to uh, to the general audience. And so we launched that this past year and that's been kind of my two main focuses. That's amazing, Trent. I also want to tell you a little bit about myself. I know uh, Ruben told me a lot about you and I'm pretty sure he told you, right? I come from a Salvadorian background myself. My parents um, were born in El Salvador. I was only the lucky one to come here, was born in the U.S. And um, ever since then, you know, I told myself I didn't want to work at McDonald's. I didn't want to work at the restaurant field. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I've always been big into personal training. I love personal training. As you can see, I look pretty swole through the shirt. And um, <laughs> I told myself, why not? Why not create something that, you know, I'm truly, truly passionate about, which is Personal training, you know, I dabbled into personal training. I started training CEOs and, and millionaires and I, I just said, wow, this is incredible. And I told myself, what if I could do it online? What if I could do personal training somehow, but take it online because this is the new digital era, right? Where everything is going online. And I finally decided to start my online fitness coaching business. I literally built it to a point where I built it to a six figure business, training CEOs, entrepreneurs, and then I said, why not share the secrets with the world? And I finally started my online coaching business. And uh, here I am today, Trent. I know because my good buddy Ruben told me a lot about you. He said that you're really big onto entrepreneurship, being a leader. And that's something that I'm really trying to transition towards is becoming a CEO and a leader. So when you were in the works and when you were you know, building your companies, what was it that motivated you, inspired you to keep going to make an impact in the world? Yeah, you know, I... I I've actually often looked at where does the chip on the shoulder come from and got this conversation the other day. There's probably some some pivotal moments in my life that, you know, just made me um, probably grind a little harder. Um, one that I brought up the other day is uh, uh, I was at NCAA championships for track and field. My senior year of college had an awesome season. And I went over and I went over to see one of my, my good friends, childhood friends, who was also there in the shot put. I was watching him throw in the ring and he came over to me and he was like, Oh, that's so cool that you came to watch. And I remember like kind of thinking to myself, F you, I'm not here to watch. I'm here to race. But that, that moment was like, you know, somebody, he, he was the great athlete in high school and all that, that everybody knew. And so it's those, I think those little moments that you're just kind of like, you're always proving people wrong. Um, you're always there to say like, okay, maybe you matured faster or whatever, but I'm going to, I'm going to get there eventually. And so you know, that was that was a result of four years of just grinding away in college. I went to UC Santa Barbara, hardly drank while I was there, um, which most people have a hard time accepting now. Um, but it was just grinding away for four years and trying to be the best and trying to prove people wrong. And so 
as I was building my business, I think the same thing too, you know, a lot of my friends were going into private equity or investment banking and having early success. And, and for me, it was how do I find a way to, to have my own success and probably a little bit of fear of failure. I hate losing. I hate failing. Um, those that know me know I'm incredibly competitive. And so probably a little of the chip on the shoulder was, was being able to, to, to hold my own with, with my friends and peers. And then the other is just straight up fear of failure. I, I, didn't, I, I didn't want to face what it would like to be to fail. Right. That's, that's incredible. Um, was there a, a point in your, in your entrepreneurship journey where you felt like you were just going to lose it all? Or was there a, a certain point where you're just like, man, I don't even know if I could even do this anymore. And if so, like, how did you overcome that? Because I feel like that is a big struggle nowadays with a lot of entrepreneur CEOs or, or just startups, right? It's like they're starting something and a lot of them feel like, damn, like, should I keep going? Should I just call it quits? And if so, how did you overcome that? I would love to know. Yeah, mine's probably story is a little unique. At, at 24, I was having a, a baby and getting married. Um, I left Merrill Lynch <clears throat> where I was making good money and, and a good career and was running track and field. And the next thing you know, I was living in a, <clears throat> an apartment. In fact, my, my uh, wife at the time and I literally slept on the floor of a, uh, of a garage. That's how, that's how broke we were when we met. Um, up in the barrier. So we came home, we were living in a, a two bedroom apartment, um, having a baby. Um, and I went from going from a, a nice corporate job to, to working in a family business with my dad. And it was a hundred percent commission. Um, and I made like eight grand that year. And so, uh, it was, it was pretty brutal to get married, have a kid, make $8,000 in a year living in an apartment. Um, so I'd say part of that was just like, like fight or flight. Like I, I had to make sure that I was going to, you know, feed. I, I had good family around me, so we were never going to starve. But there was a there right. was a, a certain responsibility that just went from running and, and, and working to I got to take care of other people. And, and my son, TJ, who's 20 now and, and my now ex-wife, Summer, um, who's, who's great. And so it was just like, a, hey, I, I got to find a way. This 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 isn't going to this isn't going to work. So I remember sitting in the office to like. 10 o'clock at night with, with another buddy of mine that, that I actually um, coerced into joining me. And we would literally not leave the office until we got some sort of deal done. And it was, uh, it was, a, it was a grind. I, I, I didn't see, I didn't see my, my wife at, for a lot of nights, you know, it was only, only in the mornings we saw each other. So. Yeah, that's crazy. That brings me back to one of the other guests that we had. His name was Dr. Eugene Choi, where he said that a lot of us, in the beginning, we're trapped in living in a state of survival instead of being into a state of executive. And he says that the ones that find themselves escape that survival state and turn into a mindset of executive state are the ones that start seeing results in their business and their life. And I feel like for a lot of people, it's really difficult to get outside of that survival state. It's kind of like you're a hamster running in a hamster wheel in circles. You think you're going fast, but you're just going in circles. But if you were just to step out of the hamster wheel, you would just go flying right into executive state. So that's really, really powerful. That's that's incredible. Pretty cool. So in terms of I know you have like an insurance company as well. How, how was that like when you know you were starting to build that up? Was that based on impact? Like you really wanted to go into that industry or, or what inspired you to want to get into that? Yeah, you know, it, insurance industry doesn't exactly, you know, impress people very often. So it was uh, when I. Came and I joined the insurance industry. Really, two things led to it was I saw one, my dad was like 
the greatest life insurance salesman you've ever met. And, uh, and there was no way I was going to be sitting in a living room selling life insurance. And I certainly wasn't going to be as good a hit as him as it, but I thought there's gotta be a better way. And I looked around at the industry and honestly, it was riddled with conflicts of interest. Every time it was all about the sale, every time the insurance agent would sell something, um, as premiums would go up, he'd get paid more. So there was conflicts of interest. Um, and then two, all the commissions in our industry were based on the salesperson, not on the service person. So you have, even today, the, the major corporations with Aon and Lockton and, and Marsh, everything is geared towards this like high-powered, almost boiler room type type environment. For me, it was, what if I could just, almost Jerry Maguire, what if I could take a small group of private equity firms, really take care of them far and mm -hmm. beyond what they would ever get with somebody else, and then they would refer me deals. So I wouldn't have to sell. I would kind of take the order and make sure I did what was in the best interest instead of always selling something. And so for me, that right. that was a way that I was like, I'm not going to be successful selling life insurance. And by the way, I didn't think that the that the peak was, was that high. Now I have such more of a limitless potential. So I think it's also important to look at the roof too. It's like, okay, what are the very best in my industry making or – What's their time like? What, what do they have to do to get there? And then do I want to get there? And then is there a better way? And so for me, I was lucky. I had, you know, my dad was a pretty good mentor. And the fact that while I was selling, he was making me go join boards and take leadership classes and that sort of thing. And so much about sales, to your point, comes down to leadership. I mean, I'm primarily yeah. business development, but so much as that is, yeah. is recognizing and being able to support people from, from just an ethical, from a, from a, a, a way of leading and from something that's much greater than just selling insurance. It's when I'm selling insurance, there's so many intangibles that, that don't show up in an RFP. So we rarely compete on RFPs because there's not even a question that says, and what else are you going to do for us? But, you know, right. we're there trying to figure out how to, how to change culture. And, and if you look at human resources, which I, I lecture that at Long Beach State, it's, I think the coolest job because you're trying to figure out how to get the most out of people just like you are with your mm. coaching, your right. human resource managers or C-level executives that understand culture go, wait a minute, I can either go hire another four people because I'm only getting 80% of capacity, or I'm going to really truly empower, excite and educate my staff to get a hundred percent out of them. And that's, that's a competitive advantage. That's awesome. And sexy to me is how do we do that? And it's, it's continuous. It never stops. It never stops. That's incredible. That's awesome. And you mentioned um, mentors, right? So would you say your dad is one of like your biggest mentors growing up that helped you get to where you are now? Or was there specific mentors that you still look up to to this day? Yeah, you know, I, I'd say my dad, obviously, the, the biggest mentor I have, I had I had several mentors, I had a, a guy, Bob Kaminsky, that ran a, a big vitamin company that took a chance on me. He was like my, my first big, big client um, that, that kind of went against the traditional team that wanted to hire the big people. Um, so he's certainly been there for me. Um, honestly, my mom, my mom has this, like, she's this savage, badass real estate woman that, that just cares about her clients. I think most of my buddies bought their first house from her and she cared as much about selling them their first house as she does about the $7 million house. So she taught me a lot about just treating everybody the same and, and, and the passion of what she was doing versus just chasing the big deals. And so um, between my, my dad's leadership and kind of telling me, here's where to go, he paved the path. And then my mom's 
um, I'd say empathy and compassion and, and just that pure love that she has for what she does. That that's a pretty good base for, for me as an individual. Right. That's that's amazing. And uh, I actually looked at your Instagram before this trend's blowing up and I noticed <laughs> that Richard Branson was there. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> would you, uh, can you tell me a little bit about that experience of, of meeting Richard Branson, hanging out with him? Was that impactful for you or, or how was it like? Cause to, to me, that's, that's amazing. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, I got nominated. Um, I didn't even know why I got nominated to go. Um, I, I learned when I was there, um, basically it was, you know, what's this white kid from Long Beach and finance doing, taking care of, of so many inner city kids. I've, I've been on the board, boys and girls club board of Long Beach for the last 15 years and and raised significant funds for him. And, um, and so I interviewed, went, didn't know what to expect. Um, day one, I'm sitting across the dinner and I happened to be at the table with, with Richard and, and, uh, right away he started asking questions and you're like, what's, you know, you thought it'd be like a meet and greet and whatever. And he was so, so curious and so genuine about what other people did. And, uh, and then every morning he plays tennis at six 30 on his Island and, so no matter how hungover I was, I was going to be up playing tennis. So I played tennis every morning <laughs> with him from 630. Yeah. And, and Richard's a little unique. He's he's competitive. So every time I went down to play there, I happened to be probably one of the better tennis players that was on the trip. So he always put me on his team every morning. So I actually got bonus time <laughs> with him because I grew up playing a little bit of tennis. And so um, he's he's. You know, he'll he'll have tea with you and, and he really cares about the environment. He cares about the world um, and he's genuine. Right. Like, like I asked him a, a pretty tough question, which was, you know, you see the memes of like, uh, you know, why are you trying to fly to space when when um, when there's people that are hungry in the streets? And and he, he wasn't defensive at all. He was he, he literally looked at me and he's like, you know what? What most people don't understand is when we when we took over space, meaning private enterprise, we brought the price from $4 billion from sending a satellite into space to $4 million. See, another lesson in how messed up government run things are, but government runs something, it costs $4 billion. We used to think NASA was like the greatest thing ever. And now private enterprises has brought the cost down to $4 million. And he said, so now think about sending a $4 million satellite into space and being able to track whale mating patterns or melting of the ice caps. We, our science it's so much more progressed in terms of a sustainable planet. And, and it wasn't, it wasn't defensive at all. And he's like, Oh, and by the way, when they, when they say that it keeps us all on our toes, it, it just, it's the temperature of where we are and what we need to do and, and, and our greater obligation. And so he truly takes his obligation seriously. He was so genuine. He's, he's an incredible athlete. I learned to kite surf on the Island and he's like flying by me at age 70 and I'm trying to learn how to, how to do this, the kite. And so, um, pretty unique experience, uh, for an entire week. He's just engaged. Yeah. That's incredible. And he has his own private Island, right? Yeah. It's his own <laughs> private Island that he bought for like 5 million in the nineties. And now I can't even imagine what it's worth. Um, I think there was like a hundred staff on the Island. It was flamingos and lemurs and all kinds of, of cool stuff. And uh, this this is uh, this is gonna be a, a great question for you. Do you uh, do you see yourself being like a Richard Branson, like a, a billionaire one day, or is it is that something you're striving for in, in your company or what you do? Yeah, you know, I've asked myself that. I think that um, there's that there's that balance of comfort and being uncomfortable. And that guy, you know, he has huge balls. Like I don't know how to else to describe it. Like he, <laughs> he doesn't mind losing 
he doesn't mind losing at all. And so I think that as you get a certain success, you go, am I willing to lose it all? Um, failures hurt a lot more than successes. I mean, I started a, a soccer um, center complex in the last you know six years and grinded away for indoor soccer centers and retail business was so hard and that failure hurts it, and it takes away from your successes, right? You know, you want to focus yeah. on your success. So I think two things. One, I probably wouldn't get there until my kids go to college, which is two years from now, meaning I'm not going to be a billionaire in two years, but I would probably take on a lot more risk at that time. And then right. two, I think that really it also comes down to he's, he's done a good job of being a family guy and also um, taking that risk and working that hard. And I think that that's a, that's a delicate balance for a lot of people um, is figuring out, you know, what's really important to you. Is it, you know, for me right now with a 16 year old daughter, it's like the single most important thing in my life. And so I don't even want to miss a track meet of hers. I just want her to know that she's loved and I'm there and she has her biggest fan. And so that's, that's tough to go out and say, I'm going to go create some new vision or I'm going to go to New York for two weeks and grind away with, you know, some new private equity clients or a recruit when, when at the end of the day, like my most happiness comes from, you know, creating, you know, two successful kids. So. Yeah, that's awesome. And I feel like, you know, um, to a certain extent, you have to sacrifice, you know, to reach the next level or to be a billionaire. It's like you have to sacrifice some things. Right. And for you, it's it's not worth it just yet because of family. Right. And I feel like that's something I can really relate to you because. To me, family is everything, right? Especially seeing them come from an immigrant background, you know, seeing everybody struggle in the beginning. To me, that's something that I strive for, right? And that's something that I really aim towards is just being able to get them to a point where money is never the problem for anybody. And just that's always the main focus. So family is something that drives me in business and entrepreneurship is, is just ultimately family, you know? So I have this amazing question for you though, right? If somebody is in the entrepreneurship journey, right? They really want to scale their business or, or reach their first million, right? Would you say reaching your first million is a lot harder than making a hundred K a year? Yeah. So, you know, that, that where you talk about survival versus executive, I think that, um, one, the, the one chance now we go back the other way, which is the chance that I took early on that I still am grateful for is, I, cause I literally, one of my best friends and he still works with me today is I was not afraid to sacrifice my own income to hire good people around me. And so often small mm. business owners are like, well, I don't want to spend that money on that person. But even, even Branson says, you know, we got into a conversation around space and all of a sudden he was like, you know, I don't know everything about it. I just hire really smart people around me. And so, um, I've always kind of, you know, paid for an assistant maybe before I should have had an assistant or hire, you know, mid-level management before I should have had mid-level management. And, and I, so I think that that's the risk part where you got to go, all right, I can't just hire a buddy, by the way, I have to hire somebody that, that is truly, you know, can critically think and go. And so there's got, you got too many small business owners stay small business because they want to control everything and they want to run everything. But for them to scale, mm. they need people and they need smart people around them and they need people that challenge them. I got yelled at by one of my managers yesterday and, you know, she's a little fiery. She's from the East Coast, but um, but it was the good passion. It was like, all right, she was working hard and she wanted this done. And so, you know, when you look at at, at quality organizations, it's okay to, to have some of that fight sometimes, to have some of that feedback that so many small business owners want to be right all the time and don't want anybody to question them. And, and I'm okay with 
with my leaders questioning me and, and challenging me. It just, it just makes me better. Right. So, so to that point, I would say, is it hard? It's hard if you stay in the small business owner mindset, if you don't think what's the ceiling and how do I get out of that? That's where you need to, so often we just work in our business instead of on our business. And when we're working in our business, mm. you know, it's like you can go to your email every day and, and, and have tasks, 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 and we can all accomplish a bunch of tasks, but how much of that's really important? How much of that's going to change the game to your business? And so for me, um, I was fortunate in the, in the fact that I hired smart people early on in my career and trusted them and sacrificed my own income for a greater down the road. Right. That's awesome. That's really, really powerful. Um, pretty cool. So if somebody was starting from scratch, let's just say they didn't have no help at all. Um, maybe they are working at McDonald's or something. That's how I started off. So that's why I'm giving you the, the example yeah. of McDonald's. I started working at McDonald's. <clears throat> if somebody was like, let's just say working at McDonald's, they have a dream of starting a business. What would you say that first move is in order to start that business? Or what would you say is that one thing they need to do in order to get out of that zone of, you know, working a nine to five? Yeah, I think, um, the goal I think is how do I get my money working for me instead of me working for my money? And so there's a basic okay. level of income, right? That you need to sustain and anything above that you got to be saving for, I'm going to start my own business. I'm going to invest in something. So whatever that, that basic level of necessity is anything above and beyond that has to be a sacrifice to, I'm going to leverage this money to go work for me. It's hard to get microloans, um, too hard, I think, in, in our country, specifically for those that are in urban neighborhoods or those that don't have uh, a parent that can, you know, personal guarantee them or that sort of thing. That's a flaw in our in our system is it doesn't it doesn't allow for for small businesses to to do what they can. There are a bunch of cool programs through cities, um, but it's how do I get that little bit of money that I can go start something greater so that I can put my money to work for me instead of me working for my money. And it may be starting with, hey, I'm going to invest in some stocks a little bit every month. Um, and I'm going to let that sure. money grow for me until I get there. Or I'm going to save up for that first duplex or whatever that may be so that I can create some income for me. Um, so I think that's the biggest is is finding either a ways to get grants, microloans, whatever through cities to saying, how can I work my way up to save money so that I can start my own thing or that I can move up because being an entrepreneur is great, but there's also, I have friends that are, that are, you know, hired guns that run, you know, billion dollar companies and they're just brilliant and they didn't start their own thing, but they started as an operations and moved to CFO and now are running. And they're some of the smartest, most successful people I, I, I know. So also in that organization, if I'm, if I'm working at McDonald's, the first thing I'm going to think of is how am I going to be better than the guy that's above me and how am I going to move up faster? So often people are reactive. They just wait to get picked out of it. Hey, I'm working. I show up every day from nine to five and that happens. But they don't push the envelope. They don't say, I want more. What can I do more? You know, I have a, a, a thing that I, I teach and is when's the last time somebody took their boss to lunch? And taking your boss to lunch isn't saying I want to go get a free lunch. I'm literally going to pay for my boss to lunch. And what it does is it changes the way that that paradigm is. When he takes you to lunch, it's a gift or whatever. When you're taking him to lunch, you you have that person's environment, he or she. And you're saying, how do I get better? What do you think the path is for me? Um, and, and where do I go from here? Um, it, there's a bunch of science around food actually it makes people more comfortable. So they become more vulnerable and they open up and two things generally happen. One, you get a path, 
you say, okay, this is what I need to know, and it's very clear. The second, which is maybe more critical, is you realize that there is no path. And too often we sit right. there and we wait for a path, and somebody doesn't want us to move up. They're happy with, with being your manager, and they just want you to show up to work, shut up, and go home because they're miserable in their own life. As soon as I find out that there's no path for me at a current job, I'm out. I'm looking for something else. I want to find something else. And and that's, that's critical is, is taking that boss or that owner or whatever and saying, what's the path and how do I get there? And if I'm not getting there, I'm going to look somewhere else. I'm not just going to sit here and hope. Um, too often we're reactive. Yeah, that's awesome. And that clicked a story in my brain. It was, uh, I was 19 years old at the time. And that was when I had left all the restaurants. And I was like, I want to follow my passion, which is training people. And I was like, what is the best gym in California? Because I want to be the best. That was my mentality. I was like a hungry lion at 19 years old. And I was like, Equinox is the most well-known one in California. So I did my research and I was like, I'm going to look for the hottest ones, the most popular ones. Because I want to be around the guys that have the Lambos, the Porsches, the G-Wagons. Yeah. So I made a list. South Bay was one of them. Uh, Equinox, Orange County, and Equinox was Hollywood. So I got my first interview at South Bay. Turns out I didn't get the job. Right. Another reason why I didn't get the job was because I was too young. They're looking for guys that were around 21 years old or women that were 21 years old. And I was like, damn it, I have a disadvantage. Right. So I got another interview at West Hollywood. And I was just thinking, how can I absolutely blow their mind to the point where they're just like, I like this guy. I don't care if he's 19 years old. We're going to get him. So I was just thinking. And our brother gave me this amazing idea. He was like, why don't you just take a binder filled with everything that you've accomplished at 19 years old. So what I did is I took like not only a resume, but I took transformations of people that I have already transformed online. I took so many things, you know, this is what I accomplished in high school. I did this bodybuilding show and I just did a whole binder. So I walked in there, I was the only one with the binder. We did the whole interview. And before I walked out, I was like, hey, listen, I wanna give you guys this binder. You know, I came prepared to give this to you guys so you guys can review it. and. Uh, you know, they were like, all right, we'll give you a call back. Next thing you know, a week later, they gave me a phone call and they're like, hey, listen, we like you. We like your binder. Come on in for another interview. Turns out they finally hired me that day. And they're like, you know what? If you would have not brought that binder, we would have not hired you. And I was yeah. like, well, goddamn. So basically, uh, you know, they've never really hired anybody in the history of Equinox. This is what told me. I don't know if they're lying, but they're like, you've never hired anybody younger than 21 years old. And I was like, all right, cool. So that gave me so much hunger to like, not just go in there and be a trainer, but be the, be the top trainer. Right. Yeah. So that brings back to the topic that you were saying. It's like, if you're going to go into anything, you always should think, how can I be the best or how can I move up? And once I dabbled into other things and I started, you know, doing uh, sales consulting or I started working for um, other companies that started closing for their, their company, I was always thinking, how can I be the best sales closer? How can I move up always? So that's really, really powerful. So, and it starts like that. It starts with working at the nine to five jobs. It starts with wherever you go. So that's incredible. And going back to your topic, I know you said, you know, you should always start thinking, can I invest a little bit into stocks or this and that? I know you also dabble into retirement funds as well, right? 401k. Yep. yep. Um, what inspired you to want to get into that? Is it just the, the aspect of long-term investing, building long-term wealth, or what would you say? Yeah, I wish I could say that it was... Um... It was calculated, but when I first came over from Merrill Lynch and, and got in the life insurance business and realized I didn't want to be in the life insurance business, I would call in these high net worth guys and I'd say, hey, you know, let me manage your money. And they looked at me and I was 24, broke, and they said, you know, you can't 
I won't let you manage my money, but you could manage my employees' money, which is kind of messed up at the time. But um, <laughs> but they would give me their 401k plans, which was a low-margin business. Financial advisors didn't want it. And all of a sudden, right. I would be in a warehouse walking people that never had been taught personal finance how to invest their money. And um, and I would sit there for weeks at a time. I remember I was in Stockton in a, in a refrigerated warehouse. I was like 140 pounds in a refrigerated warehouse without a jacket on it. And I remember freezing at the end of the day. Um, but meeting after meeting after meeting of educating people. And I actually got a lot of personal fulfillment out of that. I realized, hold on a second, we go to high school for math and English and history and and all these things, but nobody teaches us basic personal finance. And, and high net worth personal financial advisors wanted nothing to do with the guy that was making 20 bucks or $14 an hour working in the warehouse. And so for right. me, that was a, a cool thing that I took and I became the best at, frankly. I became, I felt like the best in the country at not only taking over 401k plans, getting them inexpensive, um, driving the price down, but but going out and sitting with, with clients and, and, and the employees and, um, you know, it, it's that I taught, you know, Elena, who, who runs our division, how to do the same. Now she's, I think, probably better than me now. And now she's teaching her army how to do it. It's something we've always been passionate about. Like I said, it's not our highest margin business, but we feel like we've impacted so many lives. I had this, this client, Paul Frank, back in the day, the old monkey on the shirt. Um, and I'll still go into bars or a restaurant in Newport and – this apparel company, which was kind of a counterculture, people will say like, you're the 401k guy and you got me started in the 401k back in the day. That's a pretty cool feeling because those people wanted nothing to do with finance. Um, the first time I walked in there, I walked in there with a suit and they were like, what are you doing, Trent? Get out of here. And I came back in jeans and a t-shirt and they finally listened to me. Um, so that's important too back then was like, you know, it wasn't, it had nothing to do with how much I knew and too many advisors want to impress people with how much they knew. It was, how can I relate? And how can I build trust? Um, because I'm, I knew in my heart I was doing the right thing for these employees, but I had to get them to trust me that I wasn't just some financial guy, you know, boiler room guy that was going to take all their money. And so that was that was really powerful for me, and it still exists today. And I think it's, you know, I'm proud of our team and the way that they don't just say they're going to get the deal and do it, but they're literally out doing education meetings and teaching people basic per personal finance all year long. Right. That, that's awesome. And Going back to what you said, right, I feel like in high school, I don't even remember most of the things I learned because yeah. uh, they were teaching me about Benjamin Franklin, about so many things that honestly, I just, I don't remember. And that's something that I really, I'm really big on, right? It's like, what if in school they could teach us about long-term investing or about how to properly save money or about how to look at a long-term portfolio, how to build a long-term one. So I feel like guys like, like men like you are just changing the name of the game because a lot of people just don't know it. And I feel like that's something that's lacking in the world. And I believe that's why so many people just don't know how to manage their money or how to invest in this and that, because we were just never educated on how to do it, right? They don't even teach us about taxes in school. That's something yeah. that is like, I have to learn as I grew up, right? It's like, how do I even do my taxes? So I feel like that's something that, that lacks in the world as well. But I know if you're learning about taxes, that means you're doing it right, because at least you're paying it, so. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Once I got out of high school, it was like, all right, now I have to figure out how to do taxes. So I had to start asking the people around me that I trusted, right? But yeah, I feel like that's, that's something that's lacking in the world. And, you know, Elon Musk says this all the time. He said it in a recent interview that I saw. He says, you know, just because you went to college, it doesn't mean that you're extremely smart. You know, if anything, I don't think that, you know, he says that, 
you know, all the biggest billionaires nowadays, like Bill Gates, like even him, like they didn't really finish school, but what they do is they hire the people that went to Harvard or the people that went to here and here because they're just looking for the smart people to help them build their company, you know? Uh, there's also a recent uh, interview about Gary Vee, Gary Vaynerchuk. I'm a big fan of him. I think Ruben is also a big fan of him as well. We're big fans of Gary Vee. And he said in a recent interview that he just hires pure talent. He hires people that can help him sh shave off years off the learning curve. So if somebody has been in the industry for a long period of time, they have failed a lot more. They have experienced a lot of difficulties in that area. And those mistakes he doesn't have to do if he just brings them onto the team. You know, so would you say you're really big on that, too, when it comes down to entrepreneurship or building your company is hiring talent or are you the type where you're just like, it doesn't matter if you don't have the talent, we'll train you and, and make you into this this badass CEO? Yeah, you know, we've always taken a different approach. Um, we found that when we hire experience from other insurance agencies or, or competitors, they generally um, have been trained wrong, not from a, a technical skills, but from a empathy standpoint um we kind of mm. have like four pillars of our wow which is you know accountability resolution intellectual capital and personal touch and and if we can do those four things we won't lose clients and we'll do what we say so I, we always say that we hire out of hospitality all the time we hire people that are good with people and understand we can't control insurance companies what they do how they act um a lot of times it's somebody that's uh, just a processor that's, you know, miserable and going home their own job. But what we can't control is how we react and how we support our clients. And so whether it's an insurance claim where somebody, you know, is going through cancer and they're getting told they can't see a specific doctor or get a specific test to, you know, somebody just lost, you know, their, their business in a fire and business interruption to, um, hey, the market dropped. Am I going to lose my entire career? Those three things are opportunities for us to do what we said we were going to do those those and all too often in our business people look at oh it's a claim it's this is i got to do this work and for us we look at that as this is our this is our time this is our time to show up anybody can pay premiums and, and hope that they don't have claims but when they do that's when we need to show up and that's when we need to be there for them and so um that person with talent from an empathy standpoint is way more critical to me than that person that has technical skills. The technical skills will train. We have our Bryson University and we'll teach them how to do it. And sometimes it takes longer and there's some hiccups along the way, but when there's hiccups, usually there's somebody on the staff that they can go to and, and get advice from. And so we, we generally train up instead of go hire talent from somewhere else, because every time we do from somewhere else, they've been ruined already. Yeah. That's powerful. That's that's really really powerful, <clears throat> and I feel like a lot of people have different um, different strategies when it comes down to that. But I, I really agree with that too. Um, I feel like me and and some of my buddies have experienced that as well. Is I rather just train somebody and and make them into you know uh, some somebody badass, right? And especially me is like I've come from a from immigrant background, right? So if I see somebody else that, you know, is coming from that background and just like, I have the, the hunger, the desire. I just, you know, I don't really have the skills and I love to learn. Those are the people that I'm like, awesome. You know, as long as you have the, the hunger, the, the desire and, and the will to want to be something great in this world, like you don't want to stay where you are, then amazing. You know, I feel like there's a difference between, you know, a lot of people say like, oh, you got to be really patient. And I feel like a lot of people confuse patience with complacency, right? They see it as a form of a way to just stay in the same place and, and hope that things come together 
but I'm really big on, you know, never getting complacent, really patient at the same time. I'm very grateful for what's coming. Right. But I'm, I don't, I don't really stay complacent. I'm really just like, go, go, go. Would you say like you put any balance in your life? Because I know that, you know, with building so many businesses and, and having a family, do you put any, any balance in between? Or is there a certain stop where you're just like, okay, I, I need to slow down for a bit or what would you say? Or what's your intake on that? Yeah. You know, I, I break it down pretty basic. There's, two basic foundations in my life that, um, that are really critical, you know, obviously Alexa and TJ being the number one thing, but it's, it's really, it comes down to sleep and hydration. If I don't have enough sleep and enough hydration, I can't function. I know my mind isn't as clear. I know I'm maybe more irritable. I don't think as clearly. So as crazy as people think balance is, I actually, I'm not an Elon Musk where I need two hours of sleep in my warehouse. I, I need six, seven hours of sleep. <laughs> Um, so I need sleep and, you know, Ariana Huffington and and there's plenty of sleep books that talk about the values of sleep. And I also need, need to be properly hydrated. I I drink a lot of water, green tea, and those are like basics from there. And then the the next one after that is exercise. And I don't necessarily do exercise to to look good. Um, I, I do it to, for the mental aspect of one, um, it's, it's an hour of my day that's cleared out. Um, so I'm either running or I'm crossfitting or I'm playing soccer, uh, every day of the week, sometimes twice. And so, um, and I don't, I just, I'm not a bodybuilder type. I, I feel like no matter what I do, I'm not going to necessarily look ripped anyways. Um, but I love the athleticism of, of working out. And so I'm going to exercise every day. Uh, very rarely do I have, I have rest days. And that's that mental clarity that gives me that, hey, I started off the day with a hard workout and I'm going to the office um, and I'm going to have a good clear day. So sleep, hydration, workout, and then I'm going to then I'm going to work. And that's a that's a, a pretty like that's a that's a habit that doesn't get broken very often. Even even in hotel rooms, when I travel, I have this saying that I always do 100 burpees in the in the hotel room, which my my YPO buddies know about. And, and they always laugh at me because you know, what's on a hotel room floor. So you got to put it on the towel and all that good stuff. But um, that's just a basis for what I do. I probably spent more time in hotel gyms than, uh, than most. <laughs> that's awesome. And uh, <clears throat> that's something that I talk about a lot is I have something called the MJ morning. Um, I'm really big on, on mocking some of the, the greatest athletes of all time, like Kobe Bryant, you know, Michael Jordan. I'm a big soccer fan. I love soccer. I, I was raised playing soccer. So soccer is my biggest thing. I love Lionel Messi. So I, I look into some of these great athletes and one of them that stood out to me was, was something called the MJ morning. It's something that I really follow in my morning routine, which is the first hour of the day is completely dedicated to myself and my mindset, which is just wake up. Don't look at the phone because usually when I look at the phone, there's some things that I already have to do or some problems that we have to look at. So that first hour of the day is just completely dedicated to myself. And it's it's just based on something that Michael Jordan used to do. That first hour of the day, he'll dedicate to himself his mindset, which is just doing some reading, some meditation or working out right right away, not looking at your phone. Once that first hour goes by, then I can turn on my phone and actually start doing some work. And I feel like that's something that brings me clarity because if I just wake up and just boom, focus on doing work or just looking at the problems, it puts me into a state of, of stress. And instead I wanna be into a, into a form of executive, right? It's like I wanna be able to control the day and not let the day control me. So that's powerful and I feel like that's something that's lacking in the world as well is you know making sure that you run the day and, and the day doesn't really run you. So. Um, incredible. I don't want to take up you know too much of your time, uh, Trent. I know that you are a busy guy. So where can people find you if they want to get to know you, if they want to follow you? This is absolutely mind-blowing. I'm pretty sure you're going to get a lot of my audience that are just like, I need to check out Trent Bryson. Where can I find him? 
Yeah, you know, two things. <clears throat> One thing that's been really cool is I started a podcast um, called Grit Rising. Um, and Ruben and I have been working on that, and he's been awesome. Um, so Grit Rising. Um, my Instagram is kind of funny. It's called at Trent's Blown Up. Um, and it's merely because when they first started Instagram, I had a I was taking a, a U12 boys soccer team to the state meet, and we were all kind of laughing in the sprinter van, and, and they said, you need an Instagram, and they created it. And uh, as much as it's probably a little silly, it's kind of my – I have weird things in my it. life that are homage to my, my kids. I have a uh, an astronaut in my house that's kind of a famous art, art piece that I took to both houses to just show my daughter she can be an astronaut. She can do whatever she, she wants to be. So my Instagram's at Trent's Blowing Up. Um, no G. It's just it's it's what the kids created long ago, and I've never changed it. Um, and then LinkedIn's always a good spot for, for where it is. But um, I appreciate being on today. Um, it's It's been fun. I love your energy, and, and keep going. I appreciate it. All right, guys. Thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. I hope you guys didn't crash because I know we were blowing your mind. So uh, I will see you guys in the next episode and uh, stay tuned. Cool.